Alrighty. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for the opportunity this morning to preach, and I think it's a wonderful thing that uh, he has asked us elders and some of the staff members to preach during the summer, and I've been looking forward to this. I picked Psalm 78. I don't know why, but after I started studying it, I'm glad that I picked that particular text. Because as I look at our world and as I look at our nation, and even as I look at the Central Virginia area, it distresses me. Wrong is being called right, and right is being called wrong. Sin is no longer called sin. As a matter of fact, there are a large number of people that would say that that there is no such thing as sin. They would say that maybe we make mistakes, but not sin. They would deny terms like righteousness and holiness. And they have in many ways formed their own God in their own image or in the image of popular opinion or political correctness or by what is decided by the woke culture of today. Christianity is viewed just like any other religion, just as good or maybe just as bad. They believe that if if there is any kind of concept of salvation or heaven when we die, then everyone's going to go. And the Bible's viewed as just any other book. They would not agree that it is the Word of God in the words of man. And so it's not authoritative in their life. And then they tell us to stay out of politics, and to them, everything is politics. But as I see it, most of the issues, if not all of the issues of today, are indeed addressed in the Word of God and are addressed in the church. All of these issues that our politicians started addressing and claiming superiority and authority over these issues. For example, in Genesis we read that God created man and woman. There are only two sexes. There are no more. We don't get to change that to suit our own lust and our own desires. Marriage is originated from God for the purpose of procreation and and to have a life partner, one man, one woman for life. And all of the legislation in the world is not going to change that fact. And yet we live in a day and a time when we can put a man in a dress and put makeup on him and we can call this man a woman. And a woman can cut her hair off and she can wear men's clothes and call herself a man, which is directly contrary to the Word of God. And not only the Word of God, the Bible, but also to God Himself. And it is even contrary to science. If that man who says that I'm a woman now, if he were to die today and they were to dig up some bones of this man uh, some a thousand years from now, They would be able to determine traits of this person, maybe their hair color or their eye color. But they also would be able to tell us that that was a man that was buried a thousand years ago. And it's even, it's it's, it's just a lie, it's deception and it's being taught today. It's being taught and it's a big lie. And it's being taught to our children and our grandchildren and we are to teach them truth. And the Bible is truth. The Word of God is truth. And Jesus Christ is the truth. We used to hear the word all of the time, tolerance. But now it's even gone further than that. It's gone to acceptance. Accept homosexuality and its lifestyle. Accept transgenderism and, 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 and accept. And not only just accept, but, but to, to glorify and to, 
to honor and to put forward above all other things. We see it time and time again. What the Bible calls sin, it leads to death, eternal death, in a place of pain and torment that is called hell. And yet today we're being taught falsehoods. We're being taught deceit in the world today. We remember the Los Angeles Dodgers about a month or so ago. The Los Angeles Dodgers honored and glorified men dressed up as nuns. And part of their celebration was to depict Catholics and Christians in very crude and perverse ways. Blaspheming our holy God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this was well known to the Dodgers, and they gave in to the pressure, and they began to honor them. Of course, we know what happened to the beer company that, that begins to talk about all of these things, and they, they wanted to honor what the Bible calls dishonor. And of course, we remember what happened at Target and other retailers, but I was saddened when the library at Appomattox County Public uh, in the public library there, in the children's section, they had an area in their section in Appomattox glorifying homosexuality and transgender agenda. Now, some of the books were kid activists. And this book was to teach our children to be activists in, go- in regards to this agenda. Another was June is LGBTQT plus pride, read with pride. Another was Bart the Cat, a story about two dads. And another was My Mother's House, a story of two moms. And there was another book that displayed all about drag queens. Fortunately, the Board of Supervisors made them take that display down. But it shows how close it is to our own doorstep. And now we put all of that in the backdrop of this constant harping of keeping Christians out of school, keeping Christianity out of our school systems, and keeping Christ out of our school system, and yet they take the religion out of the school, and then they put drag queen performances in. And again, all of this distresses me, and probably many of you as well. And I feel like Harry stated a few weeks ago, speaking in the language of lament, But the Bible speaks to all of these issues. And those with those viewpoints want to raise our children and keep us out of their instruction. That was what was really meant when it says it takes a village to raise a child. It's a good slogan. And if you took it on face value, you would say that's a good sentiment. But I believe that this is where the village wanted to take our children. But God tells us in his word what is right and what is wrong. He tells us what we are to teach our children. That we are to teach them the word of God and his righteousness. And lead them to Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at Psalm 78. And I invite you to turn there. But we're not going to be reading the entire psalm. We're going to be reading primarily verses 1 through 8. Which kind of gives us an outline of that particular passage. Psalm 78. And so we'll look at those truths and we'll look at what the Bible teaches us, what Psalms teaches us, and how we can apply it for our lives. And so I'm going to invite you to read along with me as I read Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. And this is what the Word of God says. Give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we heard and known and our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. 
He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to our children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget his works of God but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful, to God. And so the first thing I want us to see, the first truth this morning, is that it is important, it is crucial, and a command to teach the succeeding generations the faith path passed down. Again, verses 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generations, the glorious deeds of the Lord and the might and the wonder that he has done. I began by speaking of the push of the secular woke culture to indoctrinate our children into believing what the Bible calls sin is not sin at all. And many times when I address a subject such as that, they'll ask, well, why are you singling out that one sin? Aren't there others just as important? And my answer is, yes, they are. Sin, all sin, any sin is serious. All sin, any sin separates us from God. All sin, any sin stains us. All sin, any sin is what put Jesus on the cross of Calvary. All sin, any sin leads to death, eternal death, and a place of eternal pain and torment called hell. But I choose to mention that one because it is the one that we are being confronted with today more than any other at this moment. Or should I say, that is the one that is really in our face right now. And so if we, the church, don't speak up, then our children are only getting one side and they're unable to stand up for the truth. They have no ammunition to stand firm in the battle. If we do not teach our children, they will not know. And they will have no reverence for the Word of God. They may never know what Jesus has done for them and what He offers for them. And so it's important then to teach our children the faith passed down. And don't it, we must not let it stop with this, this generation. I think of the old musical group from back in the 60s, when, and this is showing my age, the group Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, and they did a song back in the 60s called Teach Your Children Well. And we must teach our children well. We must teach our children the faith. The writer of this psalm emphasizes that generational pattern. Look at the psalm again, verses 5 through 8. You'll see five generations appear to be mentioned. Their fathers and their children and their children and, the, and then their children. And then by implication, those children and those children in us. We are God's plan. We are God's ambassadors. You see, the Great Commission does not just apply to those strangers that we might meet, and we certainly ought to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, but our first calling and our first ministry is to our own families. Oh, how horrible it would be to know that our children were spending an eternity in hell because we didn't share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, how he lived and how he died and how he rose again, defeating sin and death, and he offers that eternal life in heaven to each one of us. The purpose of communicating to the next generation is that they would learn to trust in God themselves, never forgetting, never forgetting his wonderful works. 
and to keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. This idea of passing down the faith it was not a new one. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it's known as the Shema. And every, uh, every good Jew remembers this and, and lives according to this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all your mind. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you're set in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them on signs on your hands and you shall be, they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. We too are to teach the next generation the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. And we teach them through our experience and a, and a desire to see them to continue in the faith that leads to eternal life. If the younger generation is instructed, they will be more than likely to be obedient, although sometimes they still aren't. But they may avoid the many errors of their fathers. And then secondly, we ought to teach them in the ways that they understand the Bible says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, what is he saying to us there? He's saying to teach our children the things of God in words that they can understand. Now, oftentimes I go to the doctor. I seem to go more than the normal person. I go all the time. And, and often when I get back, one of my daughters will ask me, well, what did the doctor say? And I'll give them an answer. I said, well, they gave me a new prescription. And then they'll ask me, well, no, no, no. What did the doctor say was wrong with you? And I'll often answer, oh, I'm not real sure. I didn't understand half of the words that he said, but he gave me a prescription. And invariably, one of my daughters will begin shaking her head and say, I think next time we just need to go with you to the doctor. And then the others will just be shaking their head. But that's what doctors do oftentimes, isn't it? They use words and they use phrases that are common in their field of medicine. And they will oftentimes use abbreviations and use words that only someone in their field could really understand. And so we're not really sure what they did say. Now, we as adults, as parents and grandparents and Sunday school teachers, we must be careful to use words and phrases and methods that they will understand if we want them to communicate with them. I often joke about that I have no problem using that because the biggest word that I know anyway is mayonnaise. But really, it's important to use words that they can understand so that they can get, glean the truth. And if we really want to see this modeled uh, for us, look no further than the way Jesus Christ taught biblical truths. He used examples. He taught in parables. And one of my favorite is when Jesus was speaking to those around him about weary and, and about anxiousness. And so he, he begins all of these kind of things that Jesus could have used. Jesus could have gone into, into the thoughts and feelings and used all sorts of philosophy and, and psychology to, to talk about and sur that surround anxiousness. But notice he uses an illustration. <clears throat> Other things that all are around him. He's there in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's perhaps on a hillside. And there are all of these lilies of the field. And they're the birds of the air. And in Matthew 6, he begins to explain the reason why we need not worry uh, and be anxious about things. 
He says in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into bonds, and yet your holy Father, heavenly Father, feeds them. Are you not more valued than they? <clears throat> and which one of you, by being anxious, can add a single life, single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore be not anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And then all of these other things will be added unto you. On many other occasions, Jesus used parables or stories to make a great point. The parable of the wise and foolish builder. The parable of the good Samaritan. The parable of the lost coin. And so many others that the everyday man could understand what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was teaching to them. When we are explaining the truths of God's Word to our children, we are to use languages and methods of teaching that they can understand so that they can know what God is saying to them about this issue or about that issue. You see, we must equip our children. We must pass on the truth in parables and illustrations and words that they can understand. And then third, we are to teach them the failures of the past so that they won't repeat them. Verse 8 says, And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. There's a quote that we probably have all heard before. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And so the psalmist reminds them and us that we must tell succeeding generations the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now remember the principle found all through the Scripture. God blesses obedience, but He withholds His blessings from disobedience. But the psalmist here begins to list all through this psalm the number of times that the people of Israel had disobeyed God. The number of times that they had willfully disobeyed God. Listen very quickly to this list. In verse 10 it says that they did not keep the covenant of God. In verse 17 they refused to walk in His law, forgot His works. They sinned, rebelled. Now, I won't read all of the verses. There are 72 verses, and I encourage you to go back and read those. But I will kind of use just some of those as we're talking about it. As we read further, it says that they tested God. They spoke against God. They flattered Him with their mouth, and they lied to Him, to him with their tongue. Their heart was not steadfast with Him, nor were they faithful to His covenant. It says that they provoked Him in the wilderness, grieved Him in the desert. They tempted God. In verse 42, it says that they did not remember his power, yet tested and provoked the Most High God, did not keep his testimonies, but turned back, acted unfaithfully. They twisted like a deceitful bow, uh, bow provoked him, 
moved him to jealousy with their idols. He was saying by listing all of this rebellion and all of this sin against God, you wonder why the things are going the way they're going today? Look no further than your past. Look no further than the sin that has been in your life and is in your life. We separated ourselves from God through our sin. Another principle is that sin always leads to death. It always leads to separation from God and His blessings. And so just like this psalmist, we must tell our children the good and the bad as well. When we speak with our children and grandchildren and those that we have influence over, we must tell them what sin is and what sin does. And we do cite examples from our past and from the past generations. In the times we, that we disobeyed God, the times that we sinned against God, the times that we ignored God and His Word, it separated us from Him and it leads to defeats in our lives. And then fourth, we are to teach them the great deeds of faithfulness of God. And so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Now the main examples that the psalmist uses here in this psalm are from Egyptian captivity and their time in the wilderness. We saw how they, in spite of deliverance, they continually grumbled against God. God had delivered them. Delivered them from slavery. Delivered them from, from, from being captive in, in the land of Egypt. And he freed them. And yet they continued to, to grumble. They sinned against God in open rebellion. They even followed the so-called false gods of their day. Yet in spite of all of this sin. In spite of all of their disobedience. God remained faithful to them. And his promises. In Psalms 103, verses 13 through 14, the psalmist says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. God knew their frailties. And God knows our frailties as well. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, he never, ever, ever stops loving us. Listen to a few of the verses from this psalmist that he uses to describe and tell of the love of God that he has for his people. In verse 12 it says, In the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zoan. In verse 20, He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he also provide bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was, full of, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet, and that's the key word, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain from heaven. But before they had satisfied their craving with the food, was, while the food was still in their mouths, in spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Yet, he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh. 
a wind that passes and comes not again when he performed his sign in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He does all of these wonderful things in spite of their sin because of his great love for his people. Now oftentimes in our own families, our children might rebel. They might rebel against us as parents and certainly they might rebel against God. And we know that that God continues to love them even then and we also do. God continued to pour His love into His people, and we are to do that too. He gave them warnings. He continually provided for them. We tell them about our love for them and God's love for them, and we continually try to bring them to Jesus. But we know that there comes a time in their lives when they must make a decision for themselves. And there comes many times in the life of a parent-child relationship when we as parents... We must discipline our children. Yes, we continue to love and we continue to provide and we continue to protect. But out of that love, we know that sometimes we must discipline them. So fifth, we are to teach them that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. You see, discipline's not just a negative thing. It can be a positive thing as well. As we are receiving discipline. It may not seem like it at the time, but we learn from those times and those moments of discipline. Now, when I was younger, I was disciplined often. My mirth seemed to always get me in trouble. I always had to get the last word in, and I was disciplined for it. And all of that discipline and punishment that I received, it was well-deserved. I acknowledge that. But I learned from it, and it taught me to be a better person, and it taught me to be a person that would strive to be more like Jesus. Now, many of us like sports, and discipline certainly is a key element in a successful team. Before the season will even begin, the, the athlete will begin, and the team will begin to get themselves in shape. They will do setups, and they will do push-ups, and they will lift weights. They will run wind sprints, and then they will run for distance. And all of these disciplines will strengthen their bodies for endurance and strength. We will also have to dis- they also have to discipline themselves to play within the rules. And if not, we know that they are penalized. And if they continue to play outside of the rules, they can be penalized to the point where they're disqualified from the game itself. But the object of the rules and the object of the discipline is to make that team and to make that player a better team and a better player. In this psalm, we see God constantly trying to bring the people of Israel back to himself. He yearned for that wonderful fellowship and he wants what's best for them. And sometimes we know that he had to resort to discipline and, yes, even punishment. Look at verse 31. The anger of the Lord rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In verses 60 through 64, he forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage, Fire devoured young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priest fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. God disciplines in order to bring the people to a closer relationship with Him. 
so that they could have a life that is full and abundant and that is ultimately eternal. And He does the same with each one of us. There are consequences to what we do, but there are also consequences for what we don't do that we're supposed to do. And so we must teach others and and our generations and the succeeding generations this call for an obedient relationship. We must teach them the ways of God, who He is, His nature of love and grace, but also His call for holy living and His great provision for us all. Which brings me to my last point this morning. And that is that we are also to teach them of God's great provision. If we look at verses 67 through 72, it says this, He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ooze, he brought back him. He brought him to the shepherd Jacob, his people, to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. Now we already looked at how faithful God is, even, even when we are unfaithful. But we must also teach our children and really everyone that we encounter the great provision of God Himself. In the case of Israel, even though they constantly strayed and they followed the false gods and they blatantly disobeyed Him, God never abandoned them. Never. When they wanted a king, God gave them over to what they wanted and King Saul ruled them. But we remember that he also disobeyed God and so ultimately King Saul was rejected by God. But God provided. He provided from the tribe of Judah. And from that tribe came David who the Bible says had a heart after God. And even though David also sinned just as we do, David was a righteous man. And he confessed his sins. And he repented of those sins. And he led the people of Israel in the ways of God. And even then in this text we see a little bit of a hint of the ultimate provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, came Jesus. And the entire psalm in in, in many ways is is a foreshadowing of that ultimate provision of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, like Israel, we are sinners. We disobey. We follow the little g gods of our day. We stray. We go along with society. We want to be politically correct at the expense of being biblically... uh, We want to be politically correct at the expense of being biblically incorrect. We want to go along with the woke culture of our day and we will even deny God in our effort to be accepted. But the Bible says the wages or the price or the penalty of sin is death of all sin. And we deserve that death. But God provided His Son to pay that price, to pay that penalty for us. The Bible says, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us, He paid a price that He did not owe so that we could receive a righteousness that we certainly do not deserve. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. In Acts 4.12 it says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, Jesus, only Jesus, can give salvation, eternal life, a home in heaven. All of these other roads that are placed before us, they lead to death and they lead to destruction. They lead to eternal separation from God and they ultimately lead to hell. And that is what we we must pass on from generation to generation that God provided for us in His Son so that we could have a life that is full and a life that is abundant and a life that is everlasting. In verse 4, once again, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done.